makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Betu wastelo chante wastena page use up yellow le unkipiki he wastelo layan betu ki khanga na wastelo ola kota yellow oyate ona umpi ohola skati wichoni greetings and good day and welcome my relatives i shake your hands with good feelings in my heart and the whole world is a beautiful day it's good for all of us to be here and let the people hear your voice respectfully celebrate life this is first forces radio and i send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm your host, Teokus and Ghost Horse. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio now in its 28th year of broadcasting. And Liz Hill is First Voices Radio's producer. And you can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices, IndigenousRadio.org. And you can hear us internationally on Savizar Contemporary in Berlin and Potsdam, Germany, well, it's good to have our first guest here, Leah Hale, who is from the Sisseton and Wapaton, Dakota and Diné nations, and she makes her home in St. Paul, Minnesota, with a companion and three children. Leah works as a producer for Twin Cities PPS, and she's known for her first feature documentary, The People's Protectors, a vision maker media grant production, and winner of the 2019 Upper Midwest Emmy Award for Best Cultural Doc Documentary. Um, recently, Leah was selected as a 220 Sundance Institute um, Merita Mita uh, Fellowship for Indigenous Artists and attended the 2020 
um, Berlinier, I hope I'm saying all this stuff right, is the Berlinier European Film Market as a Native Fellow. And Leah's currently producing her second feature, length documentary about missing and murdered indigenous, indigenous women titled Bring Her Home. Welcome to First Voices Radio, Leah. And it's always an honor to have someone from back home on the radio here today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to be on today. Good to have you. You know, you've made a few films, it says, and that you, um, <clears throat> what I was really interested in, what brought my attention to the doing, the doing that you, you're being, I guess I'd say, is that back home in St. Paul, where you're born and raised in a Los Angeles area, is like, what made you move from Los Angeles to St. Paul? I could say it's the people, it's the land, it's the home, but the weather, what is the difference between that, Leah? Yeah, I always joke around because my interest in media, people always kind of scratch their heads and think, how come you left Los Angeles area and that's kind of home to where people from all over the world flock to in order to start a career in the film industry? Mm -hmm. And I think as a young person, I was still trying to search for my identity, identity as a Dakota person, so... Um, I really wanted to relocate to um, a place where I felt more at home, and um, I ended up going to the University of South Dakota, and I um, got my graduate degree in American Indian Studies, but with a focus on American Indians and film, the history of American Indians and film. But eventually, um, I also really connected, reconnected to my Dakota side of my family on my maternal side from the Sisituan, Wakwituan, Dakota, Oyate people. And I eventually really started learning about the history of that, even though my reservation technically is in northeast South Dakota, um, I started learning about that my people were originally from Minnesota area, and I started learning about what took place in history. So I really thought it was important to to move back to my homeland. So that's kind of where the, the reason came about for me moving to the Twin Cities area, kind of reclaiming that as my homeland again. That's good to hear. Leah Hale, um, what I'm looking at the, the awards that you've won, the regional Emmys um, for your films, and what really interested me is that the, the work that you're doing with uh, the veterans out there that we don't know enough or do we reflect on their experiences at all because of what they have sacrificed. But what, well, let's go to the Native nations. It, it doesn't seem, but it is ironic, if you, if, you, if you will, why Native people volunteer or enlist into this, this other military venture because we can say poverty on the reservation, we could say uh, for future or long-term employment, but what really is at the base of why, um, again, why we don't pay attention to veterans overall, namely, in this case, Native, Native veterans? Yeah, <clears throat> I, I really wanted to focus on well, I guess you can say I grew up going to powwows. I've been dancing since I could walk. I dance women's northern traditional style of dance. And I've noticed just growing up in the powwow circle how much respect and honor we as an indig as indigenous people give to our veterans. And then I started seeing 
comparing that to mainstream society and always wondered and scratched my head why I don't really see that honor and respect given to Indigenous soldiers, veterans, that I see that we as Indigenous people do. So I think that was kind of my main focus is exploring those ideas and at the same time exploring the conflict that us, um, that many of these veterans had to um, endure in regards to coming from people and coming from descendants of old societies, warrior societies that were put in place to protect our communities. And I think that idea, that idea, that ideology carries over to our modern day warriors where they feel that sense of, of urgency to volunteer to protect their people, even though that we aren't directly protecting our communities per se, but they have taken that responsibility to protect the whole nation because within that nation is the smaller communities that we originate from. So, but along with that comes the conflict in regards to going to other people's homelands and doing things to other people, such as relocating entire villages and maybe even experiencing and seeing this done in a violent way. And I think a lot of trauma has caused a lot of our soldiers to to feel conflicted as if this has done this has been done historically to my people and now I'm kind of in the process of doing it to other indigenous people. So that was really interesting and the people's protectors what I try to explore is this conflict that many of our veterans were experiencing at that time. But at the same time knowing who they are and knowing um, just the importance of what it is to be a protector and doing your best to do what you were taught to do things in a good way and not really participate in a lot of those negative things that were going on, um, such as during the Vietnam War. I understand from watching this small um, little documentary you did with the people's protectors back then, um, one of your characters, Jerry Dearly, Call, recalls the, that war within himself in a sense that, you know, he, he said he was going to make a career out of it, but then what happened there changed his mind. And he carries that. And most people don't know how heavy that is. And I think by watching this, it, it is getting out there. And then we, we need to continue that honoring, as you say. Um, also, there, there were other films that you made, the one about reclaiming tobacco. Tell us a little bit about that film that you made. Sure. Um, so when I originally moved out to the Twin Cities area, I started working for, um, it's called a, um, it's a native social service organization called Division of Indian Work. And I was their tobacco prevention coordinator. And um, it was really interesting because us as Indigenous people, we have this special relationship tobacco, but there's also this... Um, Another conflict, I guess you can say, in regards to big tobacco corporations that have exploited um, what sacred medicine that we see, tobacco, um, in its purest form with all, without all of these chemicals and carcinogens that were put in there when, in regards to corporations doing this to make a profit. 
So um, me, as a tobacco prevention coordinator about 10 years ago, I um, tried to help in regards to teaching our young people an after-school program about the difference between commercial tobacco and traditional tobacco. And what we did was um, we created these videos, um, public service announcements about the differences and also about trying to educate the community because I believe due to colonization and due to just uh, being oppressed as a people, sometimes we forget those things. We forget that there's a traditional form, but there's but sometimes us as urban Indian people, sometimes we don't have access, easy access to grow these traditional medicines, or maybe we don't have easy access to harvest them. So sometimes us as urban Indians, we started to use commercial tobacco in place of that traditional tobacco. But at the same time, we started um, experiencing the health effects that come along with that. So um, that was just my early experience of just kind of seeing the difference. And um, unfortunately, seeing a lot of people in our community that didn't know that difference. And we're, we're still trying to make that substitute happen. But at the same time, we're experiencing those negative effects, those health effects from commercial tobacco. So I really thought it was important to create a um, documentary that would talk about that history, that would talk about that change that happened, but would also encourage and motivate our communities to reclaim that traditional medicine in its purest form and to start using that again. Um, so I really thought that it was important to do my best to create um, a video, a documentary that will explore that topic and also encourage our people to, to start utilizing that medicine again. It's very interesting how the American public at large took tobacco and romanticized it over a few decades. And uh, it got to a place where they understood that overusing or misuse of it um, actually called, called, caused health problems. And now mm -hmm. that it's on the other end, tobacco is being demonized. And yet in the middle is what you're describing, the traditional use of tobacco, that something actually has that power to, to heal. And I think that has been lost in, in the mix somehow, don't you think, Leah? Yeah, I, I totally don't want to disregard it completely because um, in order to do this project, I definitely um, seeked out people who still have that knowledge and are still doing their best to educate people in their community and have started community gardens um, and are using um, traditional tobacco seeds that are grown organically and naturally and doesn't involve all of those, um, that doesn't involve the process of incorporating all of those negative chemicals and carcinogens that are, health, that are not healthy for our bodies. So I was um, uh, really lucky to have people in the Twin Cities community that are doing that work. So those are the people that I highlighted in the documentary. Um, but at the same time, I totally understand that um, there is this loss um, of, of just the know-how and even the prayers and the knowledge that go with just planting these, um, these plants. And at the same time, Harvesting, harvesting them as well, because even here in the Twin Cities, the Midwest region where, where I currently reside, it's predominantly Dakota and Anishinaabe people. But at the same time, there's differences in what they use as tobacco. 
Um, and I really learned that and appreciate that myself learning about Chan Shasha and um, how Dakota people use the inner layer of red willow bark um, and how they process that and harvest it and process, process it. And that's our form of tobacco, which has nothing to do with the actual tobacco plant what that we know of today. But that um, there's definite, definitely different species that are natural to different regions across the country, but it's very different than what the Anishinaabe um, species that they use to, to, as their form of tobacco. So it's definitely um, interesting just to realize that sometimes um, a tribal group's form of tobacco isn't what we are conditioned to think that it is in regards to the actual plant form and with the leaves and those types of things. People from region to region um, use different things as their form of tobacco. So I just thought that was really interesting. Um, me as a young adult learning, learning that through this process of making reclaiming sacred tobacco. I think it's incredible that, that you as a young adult have, are just bringing this to the older generations as we were um, not privy to so much uh, media at that time. And now that we kind of know better or should know better that we can actually uh, take take uh, another look at our usages of these um, romanticizing of tobacco and, you know, even even other things that were deemed that we are inherently born with, like alcoholism or even, you know, things like this that we will we'll never get um, with the program. And I think part of that is because we already have, quote unquote, a program, and you described it, our uses of herbs and the, the land that is there and how we address things. And one thing that I wanted to add what to you is the, the chanshasha is uh, actually red willow bark is an aspirin form. And it took care of a lot of ailments um, that were minor, but actually the, the application of, as you saying, as you're saying, the, the, uh, the knowledge that the knowledge base that's still there. And that, that's what I feel when I watched your your films here, that you're bringing out that knowledge base that maybe even Native people uh, don't know, let alone the, the public at large don't know these things that are stereotypically um, viewed within Native communities. What has changed for you as, as a woman, as a female, um, and especially a Native female getting into the film business, it seems that would be like you have two giant snowballs, two rocks to push uphill at the same time. Yeah, totally. Uh, I'm just happy that I have a lot of support around me. Um, I'm actually, I believe, the only Native um, producer at my station, Twin Cities PBS, um, out of maybe a 150 employees. Um, so... I'm just really thankful that um, I have a good support system there and the people around me are constantly um, wanting to listen to me and invite me to sit at the table and really want my perspective because we do a lot of, we produce a lot of content on Native um, topics because there's such a large Native population here in the Twin Cities. Um, we're constantly always trying to include the Native perspective, but me especially during this time and this era that we're in in regards to um, Black Lives Matter and uh, the uprising that took place here in Twin Cities and Minneapolis. Um, people are now are, are awake and are trying to do their best to um, invite people of all color to the table. So I'm, I'm hoping that 
me at my station that's predominantly um, a white institution that they're open to the ideas of trying to bring in other voices. So it just doesn't fall on my back for me to be the only Native producer there. And um, I'm really hoping that they're they're listening and that they will support the idea of of um, making sure that the stories that we tell are told by people from those communities because that totally changes um, the media that we produce in regards to whose lens is it coming from. And I'm really happy to be a part of um, that push to try to be more inclusive of other people and doing my best to try and recruit other Native um, people in regards to creating um, content that focuses on either the history of Native people in this particular region or maybe just the perspective of what what does a Native person think about whatever social topic that we're trying to tackle at that time. So I'm not too sure if I answered your question, but that's kind of my my inspiration um, in regards to just what's happening around me, trying to do my best to, as a woman and as a Native person, to push the needle, push the envelope, and try my best to to make people know that we're still here and that even though people may think that we're a small percentage, um, we still have, um, I guess you could say, a lot of stakes. We have a lot of, we have land that we need to take care of. We're fighting pipelines up north here in Minnesota to take care of our land, take care of our water and the resources. And I think um, just in regards to the recent Standing Rock that took place a couple of years ago, um, I feel like there is this ball rolling and me as a producer in a mainstream, I guess you can say PBS is more like a mainstream um, media production content producers. I feel like I'm doing my best to try and elevate um, Indigenous perspective and voices. And I think definitely it's difficult from time to time in regards to being a woman, in regards to being um, a Native woman as as that. Um, But I do my best whenever I can, and I'm glad that I I have a lot of good support around me. Leah Hale is a uh, producer for Twin Cities PBS, and as you mentioned, the, the one more question here, kind of a little off track, but it's still on track. You know, we all know that George Floyd happened there, or it happened to George Floyd in, in that area. Um, what was the communication with Native people when Black Lives Matter stood up and stood out and, and went out of their way to really include a lot of other voices? How did that feel for you as a journalist there in the Twin Cities area? I actually felt I, um, I felt inspired about what was going on. But at the same time, we're going through a pandemic, and um, it was pretty at its height during that time as well. And I have three small children, so um, I did my best to support it um, from home, whether that be um, through volunteering. And, and in regards to that specific location where the uprising happened, um, an indigenous media company called McGizzy Communications was burned in the riots. So um, that really affected our community. But was what, what was really important is um, Native people felt included, from my opinion. Um, we were there at the front lines. I actually wasn't there personally, but I have an older sister that lives here in the city, and she was there um, because she 
definitely um, experiences the daily harassment from a lot of these um, local police officers that we see. She tells me on a daily basis because she takes the public transportation and she talks about on a daily scene um, a lot of these police officers harass homeless Native people. And as you know, also in the news, we have um, a large homeless population here. And when it gets cold, it's like it's below freezing um, months at a time. So you can imagine the difficulties and the challenges that homeless people are having here. So um, we definitely felt that it was an inspiring time to to talk about these issues openly um, and be at the forefront and be included. I, I truly felt that even with this new um, term, that's kind of like the new, the new, I guess you can say hashtag, um, it's um, what they call BIPOC, um, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. To me, I just think the sound of that is awesome because I feel like really the movement itself is taking Indigenous people with them um, and is, is and because that's to me it was evident because a couple of days after the incident, the uprising took place here in Minneapolis, the Washington Red, Redskins team changed their name. So then, to me, I feel like that right there is an uh, is an example of this Black Lives Movement um, taking us with them and making sure that our issues are being addressed at the same time. Leah Hale is currently producing her second feature-length documentary about missing and murdered Indigenous women. It's entitled, it will be titled, Bring Her Home. And we're look, we are looking forward to that. When can we expect that out, Leah? Um, I can say it will be completed in the fall of 2021. So I'm really hoping that um, we will probably by the end of summer have a release date, a broadcast date for that. But just keep an eye out for it on um, fall 2021. In this case, I'll keep both eyes out for it and look for that. And, <laughs> and we can talk about that later, maybe next year sometime. But Leah Hale, thank you. It's such an honor and I'm inspired here um, to have you here on today's First Voices Radio. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Yes. This is Thank you. This is Tiokusen Ghost Tours. Um, but thank you for being here. And um, yeah, First Voices Radio is heard um, once a week uh, internationally uh, around the world. And please stay tuned. The scientific community released a report that proves beyond a doubt that the earth is getting warmer. This global warming is caused by things you grown-ups do and by the things you don't. If drastic measures aren't taken soon, by the time I grow up, there won't be any fish left in the sea. Rainforests and clean air will be a thing of the past. The polar ice caps will be gone. Oceans will rise. Entire countries will disappear. Life will change in ways you can't even imagine. There could be famine, worldwide epidemics. Life expectancy will be lower. And we're not just talking about the future. We're talking about my future. But this is no surprise. You adults have known about this for years. And though you could have done something about it, you haven't. You can say, it's not my problem. You can say, I won't be around in 50 years. But from now on, you can't say I didn't know. Starting today, 
The lines are drawn. You have to choose sides. Either you're for my future, or you're against it. You're a friend, or you're an enemy. I may just be a kid today, but tomorrow will be different. This is the last time I'll be talking to you adults. You've had your chance to fix this problem. Now we have ours. We won't be cute. We won't be patronized. And we will not be denied our future.
That's Clocks by Coplay, 2019 release. Uh, I'd like to thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. My name is T. Okuson, Ghost Horse, on the line, and I'm honored to have Karen Pugliese, and, uh, who is an assistant professor of journalism at Ryerson University, Toronto, Canada, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And Karen may best be known for her work as a Parliament Hill reporter and as executive director of news and current affairs at Aboriginal People's Television Network, where she ran the news department for seven years. And she's just completed a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University. And she's worked both daily news and long-form investigations on outlets such as iChannel, Vision TV, CBC, and CTV, which is Canadian television Canadian Broadcast Corporation, um, and uh, Karen is past president of the Canadian Association of Journalists, and uh, she has uh, also been recognized uh, with several screen awards, uh, the Native American Journalists Association and a public policy forum, and and also she is a citizen of Pikwagnagan First Nation in Ontario and is, is of mixed Algonquin and Italian descent. And um, when she's not engaged in journalism, she's paddling a canoe or shooting photos and eating fry bread. Thank you for joining us this morning, this afternoon, Karen. Uh, it's an honor to have you here um, on today's show. Thank you for, for having me. And that's, that is quite the image. I have me in a canoe shooting photos and eating fry bread all at the same time. <laughs> you need somebody to paddle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. How do you get downstream but with the flow? That's great, yeah. <laughs> so, Karen, you know, I was interested because... Um, I just interviewed a young journalist uh, filmmaker who works in Minnesota and Minneapolis, and she's native, and she's one of several hundred employees, uh, the only native in that whole corporation or PBS there in Minneapolis. And she talked a little bit about maybe the difficulty, how it is for a native woman to especially thrive in this environment of media, whatever form it is. But again, you know, when I came across a headline, racism, discrimination and trauma are driving indigenous women out of media. We must do better. And I'm thinking about it. Should we talk about the racism? Should we talk about the discrimination and trauma? Yet it seems to come to native people as one big package, just kind of put down on our reservation, our lands that we, you know, it's like a, an alien spaceship landing on our land and it's up to us to try to understand it uh, just like that. And yet it takes a little experience of, of that. And as you say, it's half the story is never enough. Tell us a little bit about why you would write such a uh, uh, an article as racism, uh, discrimination, as I read this past November 25th. Yeah, so um, there, there was the um, article and uh, there was a report, right? So um, I think, you know, starting with the report is um, UNESCO, which isn't an acronym for the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. Um, they actually um, asked, and nobody had ever asked before, what's it like to be an Indigenous woman in journalism? And uh, they, they said, you know, tell us about any physical violence, harassment, sexualized harassment um, that you experience. And I, I went out and I interviewed 15 women, some of whom had worked for me, you know, um, which, you know, like was it was quite interesting because you think you're this woke, great boss, and then you realize that um, you didn't quite do everything that you, you could have or maybe should have done. And they also wanted to talk about other things uh, in mainstream news, uh, the issue that News is always written as if it's, you know, a 60-year-old white man talking to a 60-year-old white man and uh, trying to get 
stories are important to Indigenous people by for and about us into the news is a struggle. So that that bias, um, the trauma that they face covering stories, and uh, family and uh, kinship responsibilities that just put that extra pressure um, on Indigenous journalists. But um, a lot of this is also just looked at through lens of being a female as well, because it does give you an extra layer of things that you have to deal with. So that's kind of how it came about. I think, you know, what I'm hearing is that you talked about white men writing by, for, and about Native people for for white men, um, basically. And what, what I'm looking at is that this, this carrying on this myth that uh, that they have about us, is, is that a barrier at all? I mean, to you and I, it's obvious, but what do they not see with this myth about what they you know, are assuming about us as Native people? Well, I think there, there are a lot of things that, um, like the reporters talked about, right? Like the, the main thing, there, there's trying to get your stories pitched. Um, very often they would go in and say, they would talk about um, missing and murdered Indigenous women, and they'd say, well, that's not a story. Why is that even news? Um, it took a lot to, we had a, along with uh, residential schools, um, after residential schools closed, we had um, people coming into our communities and taking our children into the uh, child welfare system, often just because of poverty and uh, kind of the colonial legacy of poverty. And, um, you know, trying to unpack that and get that story out there because non-Indigenous people don't understand it. They, they don't understand Canada's history. Um, they often didn't know about residential schools or 60 scoops. And so it was a lot of arguments, sites, and pushing back to try to get those stories into the mainstream. And, and that's partially why in Canada we had the Aboriginal People's Television Network form, was because we need to have our own media, because uh, the mainstream media was uh, stereotyping, uh, not giving a voice, to Indigenous people, even in our stories, they're writing stuff about us without us. Um, and uh, then not choosing the topics that are important to us, like the things that really, on a day-to-day basis, grassroots people level people are facing, that uh, they consider newsworthy. They're not newsworthy to that imagined mainstream audience. And I think that newsworthy thing that you talk about, and I read it a little bit about the uh, the sanitization or not saying what, um, not saying what they want us to say, but they actually accept those natives who talk about and see themselves as perceiving, if I'm saying this correctly, what they want us to be. In other words, if if I was invited to a group uh, to discuss something, that they would expect me to stand up and beat on a drum and dance and, you know, talk honorably in that way. And and I think that that era is past. Um, you're describing yourself as, you know, you describe your experiences. This is, it's moved on from that. And we, we can no longer live that trauma within their eyes, but we have to deal with it on our own. I think that what I'm feeling with you, this, it's good, honest um, writing journalism because it's coming from us now and it, it's hard for the ears for them to hear our, our stories because I know I experienced it too it's, it's a short 
discussion. It's, uh, their history only goes so far. Um, they say that they want to make up our history before they got here, which they cannot. And how much is, is that? Has it taken you to see maybe some little change in, in that, uh, in the media, uh, area, the media area that you're covering? Well, I think um, in Canada, like 20 years ago, we had the 1996 uh, Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, and it complained about stereotyping in the news. And then in 2015, we had our Truth and Reconciliation Commission that said the same thing. And there's this 20-year period in between there where, yes, you did have an Aboriginal network start. But um, we're taking a look, and there's very few, like only the public broadcaster and APTN have really hired numbers of Indigenous people into newsrooms, it's very common for somebody to be the only one. And, um, you know, just trying to to get their stories heard, their voice heard in that newsroom is a struggle. Sometimes when they push back, you know, they just get labelled difficult. And so for some of these reasons, um, you just don't see anybody... Um, or very few people get promoted, Indigenous people get promoted to management or to decision-making positions uh, inside mainstream media. There's only a couple at the public broadcaster, and I don't think anywhere else in the industry. Um, You know, we we have a national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. There is one Indigenous person who they recently hired um, to be a reporter, and they recently, just very recently, hired a columnist, like we're talking within the past year. But for, for years, there was just no Indigenous person there. So um, this means that, you know, the, this is why the stories aren't getting covered or getting covered in a good way. Um, but there there is an effort. And I think really Black Lives Matter, when it came up to Canada, it restarted this conversation because Black Lives Matter made space for Indigenous people in their movement. And so they started talking about how Black people are represented in media, but they they made space for Indigenous voices to come through and talk about how we're represented in media as well. So that restarted this whole conversation. It's incredible because, you know, what I'm hearing from under this day out, Black Lives Matter has allowed that space, yet in the other places there's not that space it seems to be more of a tokenization of uh, words as as you say expressions of native people but um the whole idea is that well is there a certain level of this um i don't know this 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 um kind of indigenous men keeping native women from actually becoming journalists and having a stronger voice within a native world. Is that, is that there or am I just thinking about this? Well, I think it, I, I think what happens, there's a couple of things that happen. One is that um, a lot of uh, female indigenous journalists, particularly those working for places like working for indigenous media, they tend to be the ones who go out and do the accountability stories. A lot of our communities function very well, but there are those that are not functioning well. And um, they will go in and ask questions about, you know, follow the money stories. Um, why did money appear to be misspent? And uh, they face violence when they've gone in to do those stories. So, I mean, there's that. Um, within the newsroom space, um, it just seems that the, like, the guys get promoted, <laughs> you know, the women don't. And I think that's not necessarily the... You know, that's not the Indigenous guy's fault. 
that he gets promoted. Um, it's more just a gender bias that is in these newsrooms. And it's almost a question of um, you're going to face a bias because you're Indigenous and you're in double jeopardy because you're an Indigenous woman. And that is uh, a barrier to promotion. Most of the journalists who are out there right now in Canada who are Indigenous are Indigenous women. And largely it's because, for whatever reason, over the years, Indigenous women have tended to outperform uh, men in attaining, uh, you know, university educations. And uh, so we enter the market, but then somehow there's a barrier to us getting promoted. The, the managers that I mentioned and at the public broadcaster, there's two Indigenous managers that I'm aware of, both men. There are, you know, um, so many Indigenous women who are leaving the industry. Um, and part of that is that they, they can't get ahead. And it's just, is it it's pushing aside, you know, adjacently and and they, they some stay and some change fields, maybe? Maybe that's what you have done also from television to just being a journalist or a teacher of journalism? Yeah, well, in my case, it was um, like, it, it was a, like a real choice. I mean, I kind of had what was... You know, what every, what every little Indigenous girl dreams of being when they grow up, I think. Right, right. Like, I, yeah. I was running a newsroom at APTN, which is quite spectacular. But when I went in, um, I did say that I would only be there for five to seven years because I wanted to make some changes. But um, I didn't necessarily want to stay. There were some personal reasons for wanting to be closer to, you know, my homeland. And uh, I, I have an adult son who I'm hoping is going to give me grandchildren one day soon. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I did, I did have reasons. I didn't feel like I was um, by any means pushed out of there. Um, but APTN is one of the places where uh, Indigenous journalists go when you've been kind of chewed up and spit out by the industry. There's a lot of women there who hit the, like, hit the glass ceiling in the industry, and they go into APTN, and all of a sudden they get promoted up to management. In the mainstream journalism newsrooms, they were referred to as difficult or problems, just because they were pushing and fighting for stories, or because they encountered racism and they brought it up, they dared to to bring it up and uh, push back against it, and then they go into um, like an indigenous newsroom, and all of a sudden they're not difficult; they're great journalists. So, I mean, you tell me. Yeah, there's there's three words. Um, and I've, as I read this article in past November twenty fifth, three words, uh, Karen. It says she remembers everything. And and I noticed that you know within our traditions that women are the carriers of the history. They remember more relational memory, and maybe I could say I could, for me as a male, I could say that's why women are can see and remember almost photo, uh, photo, photographic mind what goes on within the the nations, as well as how we are treated. So the intricacy or the intimacy that they have. Being a woman in relationship to the outside world, I think it's it's more stronger, and it seems to me that would be a little more dangerous work because when I get on the the YouTube or I'm reading articles or watching something, it's women making these reports, um, you know, with with the the standoff of the oil um, pipelines and throughout Canada, the United States, women are are making this time. Do you see that as has always been this way? Um, not because you have the advantages of education, but because it is a traditional way also. 
Yeah, it's true because in a lot of, um, I mean, in a lot of our cultures, women are land protectors or water protectors. So um, that position of being out in the front line, and then I think just the the colonial violence. Um, you know, a part of what I said in that article, it was a, a bit of an apology to uh, Larissa, who had been a journalist. Who Larissa Burnhoff is a journalist who worked for me, and I sent her out to cover um, missing and murdered Indigenous women stories. And a lot of these stories, which you hear in court, what you hear from the families, like it, it's brutal. It's brutal because the women aren't just killed. Um, you know, uh, trigger warning for people. I mean, they're 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 tortured um, in these murders. I, I, they're it's terrible what happens to them. But when you go to report it out of respect for the family, and out of just you know trying to not make the not sensationalize the death, you don't always tell those details. So I don't think I really realized um, with Larissa and with others exactly what was how much. Uh, violence they were experiencing in telling the stories and how hard it was and how much more support um, emotionally and spiritually they needed uh, to be able to do that job. And um, I, I mean, I, I realize it now, but I didn't realize that at the time. And I, I as Larissa was talking, I wanted to say, yeah, but uh, you didn't tell me. Yeah, but we have elders you could have talked to. Yeah, but. But it, it doesn't matter because... Um, you can't yeah, but somebody when they're telling their their truth, right? The truth was that um, we've got to do a better job supporting our women when they go out there and they take on these roles as storytellers and truth tellers, because it's it's hard, hard work. I want to be a um, a male here and ask the the point of privilege: How do men do this? How do we change? Because we we seem not to be moved by much of anything emotionally or, or not, but all not all men are like this. Um, when I think about, you know, we, we, as you say in the article, shine the light in dark places. And women seem to be doing that. And it's a calling out period for me as, an, as a male. This is not a confession, but it seems that that's what we have to do as males and generally. But for Native men, it, it's uh, how do we survive ourselves um, when we are just kind of losing identification? We're losing relationship we're having to to be uh, pressed on to become the Canadian or the American um, and hyphenate who we are as our nation um, what happens you know is there an answer for men do we change and how do we or is that just too much of a, a prima donna thought process no I think it's you know I, I don't think it's um, necessarily um, how would I put it? I, I don't think it's a, necessarily a battle of the, the sexes that's happening. Um, but I think um, I, I think just everybody's supporting uh, the work. And, um, you know, it's, it's really great, I think, to... Uh, when we put out this report, it was great to see a lot of the male journalists or men, like, we were looking for it. You know, are they going to retweet our report? Are they going to understand that what we're saying is, yeah, we all suffer this, but um, there's something a little bit extra about being a female in this business that, uh, you know, like that we need we need extra supports for. And it was really great to see men coming forward and uh, supporting us and uh, retweeting the report. I mean, that meant a lot to to the women who are in there just to sometimes you just want people to recognize you know, just to hear you. And I think that's 
just really important. Um, I think also with some of the, there, there is colonial violence in our community. It, it comes out of the fact that we've been living with colonial structures, um, you know, fallout from, uh, in, in Canada, especially from residential schools, um, because those were very violent places. And trying to recover from that, I think, is going to take a community effort. Um, we we all need to be part of that solution to end the violence that seems to be happening disproportionately to Indigenous women. Well, thank you very much for being here, Karen Pujolet. I hope I'm saying this correctly. And <laughs> thank you. Um, I have a friend with the same last name, and I oh, she she says it differently. But thank you. You are a professor at journalism at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada in Ontario. Thank you for being here. It's really interesting to talk and we should talk again because now I know what you do and who you are and where you're, you're, you've been. Well, this is an addition to, you know, there's no borders between Canada and in the United States as far as we are concerned as Native people. And I want to keep that non-border open, so to speak. Thank you for being here. It's such an honor to have you, Karen. No, thank you for having me. I'm honored as well. And this is First Voices Radio, and my name is Teokasen Ghost Horse. This, again, it, you can hear it all over the, the web, all over 108 stations as, as I know it, as goes out to different parts of the world. Again, right here, uh, my name is Teokasen Ghost Horse, and Toksha Ake watching Telo. I'm going to read you the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Preamble Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world. Now, therefore, the General Assembly proclaims this Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations, to the end that every individual and every organ of society, keeping this declaration constantly in mind, shall strive by teaching and education to promote respect for these rights and freedoms, and by progressive measures, national and international, to secure their universal and effective recognition and observance. Article 1. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of community. Everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth or other status. Furthermore, no distinction shall be made on the basis of the country to which a person belongs.